a.m. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge here on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for joining us today. Dr. Karuchek, Mike Karuchek, that's me, your host today. And I was a little dazed and confused. I thought I was supposed to be on last week and I was getting ready for the show. And they said, no, you're on this week. So a little unexpected for me to be here. But again, I'm delighted to have the privilege of speaking to you uh, for another hour of the Doctor's Lounge. So thanks very much once again for listening. The Doctor's Lounge is sponsored by... As you know, the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, a 501c3, we support free market solutions, free market-based solutions for the problems facing healthcare today. Uh, we enjoy a wonderful working relationship with the Heartland Institute. Uh, I enjoy working with Mike Hamilton over there and a little bit of a programming informational note. They are working on an article on tort reform based on uh, HR, I think 2015 it is, uh, which is in process in the U.S. House of Representatives. So they're using that <clears throat> bill, excuse me, as a uh, as a jumping off point to do a, a sort of an update on uh, tort reform, if you will. So keep your eye out. Uh, and for the Harlan Institute, uh, I presume they're going to publish that in Healthcare News, uh, their publication. So read the Healthcare News, listen to the Doctor's Lounge, and uh, you will not go wrong with uh, healthcare policy. So so where are we in the grand scheme of things? Uh, this is such a crazy news cycle. We've got major stuff coming out every day, uh, much of it involving healthcare policy. We have a a bill that has passed the House, uh, which is the subject of great debate, whether you're a purist and think it didn't go far enough or a realist and think that this is, has to be, um, you know, has to be crafted with political limitations in mind, uh, or perhaps a pragmatist. Uh, since the Senate has declared in no uncertain terms that they're going to start with a clean sheet of paper and draft their own health care bill, which they sort of imply um, will have nothing to do with how the House bill has been crafted. And so there may be a very wide gap between the House version of what Obamacare repeal and replace should look like versus the Senate version of what Obamacare replace, uh, repeal and replace should look like, and then some sort of uh, you know, reconciliation process between the two of those, which then has to turn around and pass the Senate reconciliation process to become something that gets to the president's desk. So a long, long way to go uh, in terms of you know, where, the, where this is going. So you know, we went from singing uh, Happy Days Are Here Again in November, not so much because of who was elected perhaps, but, um, but who wasn't elected and now we're singing a different song old led zeppelin song from 1969 called you guessed it dazed and confused so very difficult to figure out where we are i think uh, charles krauthammer had an interesting comment um on on fox news last week and uh, i'm gonna play that little sound bite for you here we go republicans are not arguing the free market anymore they have sort of accepted the fact that the electorate sees health care as not just any commodity. It's not like purchasing a stake or a car. It's something that people now have a sense the government ought to guarantee. That's a right. So, yeah, this is interesting. And he went on to, to declare that he thought we were, you know, halfway down a 14-year road, so seven years left. And within seven years, we would paradoxically end up at single payer in spite of the fact that at least in theory – we're headed, you know, veering the other direction from where Obamacare has us now. But his point, I think, is a very good one, which is that 
the the assumptions behind the discussion are that somehow the government has to play a central role in the delivery of health care in the United States. And you know that's not something that we're very comfortable with or very happy with. Um, but these assumptions seem to have worked their way into the American psyche because Obamacare has sort of, you know, been based on the uh, notion that that healthcare um, is a right for everyone to have. And I'm not here to argue that point one way or the other. I'm simply here to say that it's it's made its way into the discussion, and so now it's not a it's a matter of you know guaranteeing people coverage and talking about pre-existing and age premium ratios and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I, I I agree with him maybe seventy five percent. The the point that I disagree upon I think is that if 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 we rely on the government to come up with a solution, then yes, that's where we're going to end up. I think where we need to find the biggest ray of hope at this point is that uh, the solutions aren't going to come from the government. You can't expect a, a a centrally planned process such as federal legislation to produce anything except a centrally planned paradigm for the delivery of health care. So it, it, it's probably foolish to expect anything more. I, I think it's going to come from things like direct primary care and, and, and other things uh, that like David Goldhill calls green shoots, you know, experiments that happen all by themselves spontaneously that don't come from a, inside the beltway. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of how broadly you're willing to think uh, – Depends on whether or not you agree with uh, Charles Krauthammer's proclamation that that single payer is going to be uh, inevitable within seven years. I am still more optimistic than that, not because of what I think the government can do, but what I think that every doctor can do and every patient can do and doctors and patients can do working together, or so we hope. So now then to the topic that I promised uh, ahead of time, which is to talk about, uh, again, a sort of a health IT update, sort of a, uh, a comment on the social situation in healthcare right now, sort of apart from healthcare policy. Uh, and it all stemmed, ironically, I reach back here and grab my notes way in the back, come back. Uh, here is um, a, a conversation, ironically, that I had in our doctor's lounge, right? That's our show here, right? The doctor's lounge. And, and we introduced this show uh, almost three years ago now as the show where doctors go to talk amongst themselves about the things that are important to themselves. Uh, you know, but of course we want this to be a show that's relevant for patients as well. But this was a conversation in the doctor's lounge. And ironically, um, I don't get to our doctor's lounge very much anymore. Uh, too busy doing stuff, too busy finishing my EMR chart notes that take up too much time, too busy talking to my administrator about – uh, you know, how to get our reporting to work, you know, those sorts of things. But I managed to get a little break in the clouds and actually walk over a couple of buildings to our hospital and go into our doctor's lounge and sit down with doctors that I hadn't seen for a while, whose company I greatly enjoy. Uh, one was Brian Hill, who's been a guest on the show. And if you listen enough, you know him. I think Hal had him on within the last couple of months. Uh, and another Dr. Hill, Dr. Susan Hill, uh, someone else I'm also very fond of, a nephrologist. And so we were eating lunch and talking and, and said that, that really none of us had gotten there very much lately and that, uh, you know, if we get there at all, we just take our lunch and put it in a to go bag and run back to the office and try to eat and work at the same time. And so, you know, the, the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves, as we described this show to be, um, isn't isn't happening as much anymore, and certainly wasn't happening uh, as much anymore. And we talked about how sad that is, not just 
from a social standpoint, but from the you know the the um, the, the interpersonal the, the way that interpersonal relationships between physicians affect the quality of care that we're able to deliver. Uh, that when we refer a patient to another doctor, it is a far more powerful and effective referral if we can say, look, I know this lady. I know this man. We are friends as well as colleagues. We know their families. We know their kids. We talk all the time. Not only do we you know, engage in the in the business of patient care, and so we know from a technical standpoint that they're good doctors, but we know from an interpersonal standpoint that they're good people. And that sort of thing is fading away, unfortunately, as care becomes less and less personalized and uh, doctors become more uh, employed by hospitals and less self-employed. And we, we, we now begin to obsess about quality measures as opposed to a very special interpersonal process between doctors and doctors and doctors and patients um, that, that make these things work. Uh, and that, that, that trust that we get with each other, that we can share that trust uh, with our patients. Uh, and that that is beginning to uh, to fade away. And so we had talked about some other things, uh, and it was interesting because at about the same time that that I had this uh, this little conversation, we uh, you know also there were two articles that had come out that we discussed. Uh, uh, one of which was an article that was um, published in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association about the uh, the rules of the game for texting. Uh, the other article that came out was directly addressed uh, why you know conversation that we had in the doctor's lounge, which was that how how the the deteriorating quality of communications is uh, hurting healthcare. Um, so we're going to walk through a couple of these articles uh, because I think they're, uh, they're they're kind of interesting. So uh, the the first article was in Forbes magazine. I'm going to reach back here. And- Back to my back table and grab it again. So here it is. This article is written by one Nicole Fisher and published in Forbes, uh, May the 2nd. So you know, roughly a week ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, I've had the privilege of, uh, of corresponding with Nicole. It was a long time ago. Uh, we had talked about some articles to submit together and, and, and whatnot. But uh, I do like much of what she uh, writes. And I, and I definitely like this article, although I had some, some disagreements with it. But we'll go ahead and finish this segment talking about the article, and then we'll go into the next segment and finish this stuff up. But uh, the article is entitled 10 Ways That Lack of Communication is Ruining Healthcare. And I think you talk to any doc uh, and they will agree that, that the difficulties we encounter when communicating with each other, whether it's finding time to sit down in the doctor's lounge or being able to text with confidence that we're not going to get busted by the feds um, or that we have enough time to talk to each other after we've satisfied all our quality measures for the day. I think any doctor would agree with that. But the way she lays out, uh, the 10 ways are pretty good. They're not perfect, but we're going we're gonna to go through them. So, uh, you know, number one uh, in her list, providers do not talk to each other. Well, that's just what we're talking about. Uh, healthcare providers, I'm quoting from the article here. This is, this is uh, her words. Uh, Nicole Fisher, healthcare providers enter into the health field because they care about people. Very true. We want to make the world and the people in it better. Um, but it is a, a fact that, and I don't know what her source is for this, but she quotes this statistic. 30% of malpractice cases between 2009 and 2013 were a direct result of communication failures. Uh, and and that makes sense to me because again we we have many barriers to communication. Uh, one of which is that we're extremely busy. So the idea of picking up the phone and talking to each other 
you know, just isn't practical. And that's a really, really sad thing that used to be the way that we did things all the time. You know, now when, you know, I get and staff comes back and says, you know, Dr. So-and-so is on the phone, wants to talk to you right now, I, I cringe and then I feel guilty and feel bad about cringing. Uh, because it's kind of like a phone call. I got to stop what I'm doing. I got to make every patient that's in the waiting room wait another five minutes. Um, and you know, there would be a really easy answer to this. It's this technology that every single one of us uses, which is texting. But physicians are afraid to text. Most of them are. And the ones that aren't afraid to text have horrible HIPAA violations. Uh, you know, I get texts from docs all the time with full patient names, date of birth, room number, all this stuff. And I, I never, you know, I got away from reprimanding a long time ago because that just doesn't work or, or gently saying, hey, you know what, you can't put PHI in a phone note. But uh, anyhow, we're coming up on the end of the segment. So we're going to fig- uh, finish this article in segment two. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the doc. Welcome back. I didn't have my microphone up. Try again. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge here on America's Web Radio. Karuchek, your host this week. Uh, it's a privilege to be here talking to you, and I certainly appreciate. Uh, your time and attention uh, to the stuff we try to share with you about healthcare and healthcare policy and what being a doctor is all about these days. Um, let me uh, begin the second segment with the usual plea. Um, we cannot do this without your financial support. We are certainly grateful that you give us your time. Uh, I feel a little self-conscious asking for money on top of time, but the bottom line is if we don't have it, then we can't stay in front of this microphone and bring you the best in healthcare policy. Uh, remember, we are the only healthcare policy think tank out there staffed almost exclusively with full-time practicing physicians. Uh, not only do we study the policy like everyone else does, but we go and live it every day, take care of patients all day, every day. Uh, we don't get any sort of uh, financial support by doing this radio show or the other activities um, that we do to support this group. Uh, but we do need uh, money to support overhead to put this show on the air, which costs money uh, to do the other things that we do. So please, 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 please go to docsforpatientcare.org. Uh, D, the numeral four, 
PC, the word foundation, d4pcfoundation.org. Uh, no amount is too small. Uh, whatever you can spare, it helps to keep us going. So thank you in advance uh, for your financial support as well as the time that you give to, uh, to listening to our message. So we were talking, we were lamenting. I was lamenting about the fact that the, the lack of communication, the, the lack of opportunities to communicate, the fact that communication between doctors and patients, between doctors and doctors is becoming harder and harder and harder and it definitely hurts patient care. So we were talking about, you know, the one obvious solution to much of this problem would be texting. And yet, um, there are two kinds of doctors regarding texting. There are doctors who are deathly afraid of texting like me, who try to avoid it as much as possible regarding communication with patients. And, and as a result, we don't communicate as well with fellow providers as we need to, period. Right, telephone is too inconvenient. Texting we're afraid of. Uh, there are no other modalities out there that, that have any hint of practicality. So I found this article. That was published uh, just, I want to say, uh, a couple of days ago, May the 8th, um, by one Dr. Drolet or Drolet, not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, the cool part is he comes from my residency, Alma Mater Vanderbilt, and um, kind of gave us an update here on what's permitted and what's not to sort of revisit the ground rules as to what you can do with texting and what you can't. And there's a lot of controversy in this area, right? There's a lot of companies out there like Tiger Text that will tell you that all texting is non-HIPAA compliant and that their product is HIPAA compliant. And I think one of the first things here that Dr. Brian does that I really like is to sort of blow up all those myths and remind us all that HIPAA, right, the legislation from which all of this comes, goes out of its way to be technology agnostic, that means they cannot tell you that Tiger Text or any other product that you would buy is HIPAA compliant because there are no definitions for HIPAA compliance as far as the particular technology you're using. So that's good and it's bad. You know, It's good because it doesn't create winners and losers in terms of technology. It's bad because you can never say, okay, I've bought X product, therefore I know I'm compliant because this is recommended by HIPAA. That's not going to happen with the current legislation and there's no change coming up about that. Um, but texting still happens regardless. So some statistics from this article, 60 to 80% of physicians use text messaging for clinical communications, right? You use it, I use it, we all use it. Um, it is to some degree unavoidable. Um, but the question is, what are you allowed to do and what are you not? Well, to be HIPAA compliant with texting in the current state of the art, there's two things that you need to do. And if you can do both, that's great. One or the other will be adequate. One is um, to you know come up with you know a way to text with encryption, like if you're going iPhone to iPhone with iMessaging, uh, that's got a high level of encryption. Make sure that your cell phone and I do this. I practice what I preach with this. Uh, you know, if you buy, you know, I'm just going to use iPhone as an example because it's what I have, not endorsing, of course. Um, is that typically these devices, uh, iOS devices, have a four-digit unlock code, one, two, three, four, whatever. But you can actually, in the preferences, select a alphanumeric code, which would be like a full-length password. So I've got a full-length password on my iPhone um, you know, because I get text messages on there from our answering service through a secure app. And so to protect that phone, we do more than just the, the, the four-digit numeric code, which, of course, there's only 10,000 combinations for that. So 
um, you know, if you go alphanumeric, it's it's much more uh, it's much more secure. Um, so you can you can go to reason. They, they call it reasonably anticipated risks to anticipate those risks and and create uh, mitigation strategies. So one thing you can do is is do this thing with your iPhone, and I presume that Android phones have the same thing. Although I'm not as familiar with Android, it's been many years. Um, so uh, the other thing that you can do besides all of the, those possible safeguards is to de-identify the information that you're transmitting back and forth. So easier said than done, but at least it gives some sort of guidelines to begin to work with. <clears throat> and and some of these, uh, you know, I disagree with, but they are what they are. So there's 18 criteria for things that you need to not put in a, a text note, like a patient's account number, obviously, or their name, obviously, or their initials, which bugs the crap out of me because you know it's initials. You can't really identify somebody by their initials. Um, this is silly. I mean, we've got. We've got ransomware people and hackers stealing, you know, health information records by the millions, and we're worried about whether or not there's initials in, in a in a text. I mean, I think that's kind of silly, uh, and it, you know, I don't know of any anybody who's had their identity stolen because their initials were put in a text. But some of the other ones are more reasonable. You know, I, I think you need to be able to use hospital room numbers, which they also forbid. But, you know, there are some obvious ones here, right? Birth certificate numbers, license numbers, serial numbers, email addresses, full face photographs that you could identify the person, um, you know, health plan beneficiary numbers. I mean, all those are pretty obvious. I think the only ones in this protected health information list that I have an issue with are initials and hospital room number because those are mission critical if you're going to go see a consult or something. Um, and the problem is if you de-identify too far, you might – you, you might not know the identity of the patient somebody's talking about. So, so that's kind of silly. But there is at least an upgrade here or an update uh, in uh, you know, what the rules of the road are in terms of text messaging. But the two take-home lessons from this are, number one, it is legal to do as long as you follow the safeguards. And you don't have to have a secure add-on product to do it. It's just that if you're going to use standard text packages – you need to be sure that your phone is well encrypted, not just the generic four-digit number. Um, you've got to you know, lock your phone up with more than that and have the ability, if you lose your phone, to remotely erase and all those things. And, and, and Apple at least has those functions built in. I don't know about Android. Uh, and then the second thing is to de-identify as much as you can what you're texting. You can't text somebody and say, hey, I got John Smith. He's in room 815. I want you to go see him for a nosebleed. You've got a – I would say initials are okay. I don't know how you steal an identity with an initial. Uh, similarly with the room number and um, and then you know make sure that your phone is locked down as tight as it can be. So uh, I was a little bit encouraged by this article because at least it, it, it did the research and said, look, yes, you can text with standard text package, you know, text application on your cell phone as long as you take appropriate safeguards. So I found that a little bit encouraging, um, and, you know, and I'm glad I don't have to go out and buy some kind of you know third-party product to do it. But um, that's where we stand with with the texting. So I, we kind of went on and talked about some other things, right? Remember, this was all in the context of 
um, my discussion with two Dr. Hills <laughs> that I had the privilege of talking with at lunch yesterday. Um, and so we'll circle back to this article of, of 10 ways of communication that communication is ruining healthcare. This came from Forbes magazine. Uh, author is Nicole Fisher, whom I have communicated with before, and I like much of what she writes. So we were talking about the, 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 the ways that lack of communication is ruining healthcare. We sort of got off on a tangent about the texting, so we're going to circle back to the thread here. Um, number one, providers don't talk to each other. Maybe with texting we can a little bit more. Uh, so number two, hospitals don't talk to each other or themselves. And, of course, they compete with each other. Why are they going to talk to each other? They're not going to share data. They're not going to do all that. And they, they quote $12 billion a year for the waste. Okay, fine. Um, researchers. So number three in this article, three out of ten researchers don't talk to each other. Ah, uh, you know, this is old stuff. Uh, I saw this in residency. The problem is that researchers are slaves to their NIH grants or wherever they're getting them. And so they're going to do the things that they need to do to keep their revenue stream coming. And, you know, beyond that, if they have time, fine. But, but they're, they're, the researchers, the PhDs that work in the academic departments, for better or for worse, uh, you know, have to make sure that they're communicating more with NIH than they are with each other. Now, we go to meetings and we present these papers. I'm not sure that this one is as valid as some of the other ones. I'm not terribly impressed with this one. So we'll move on. Number four. So number four is pretty significant. She writes, number four, no one talks to the government. Well, I would modify that a little bit. We all try very hard to talk to the government. I think it's that government doesn't listen. Uh, I think it's that uh, we are forced by regulation to talk to the government in certain structured methods that aren't listened to. Um, we we talk to the government by quality reporting, and uh, you know that's a scripted message that nobody ever goes back to read and nobody listens to. Uh, and you know, I so that's part of the problem is we're so caught up with regulatory requirements to maintain our communication in meaningless ways that there's no bandwidth left for meaningful communication. Number five, <coughs> excuse me, in her list, EMRs don't talk to each other. No, they don't talk to each other. Again, why should they? Um, it's not, it, has, it wasn't legislated in the original meaningful use. And this is what happens when you try to micromanage with legislation. Right? If you forget anything, it's forgotten, and it'll never be paid attention to unless you figure out you got to write a regulation like for interoperability, for EMRs to talk to each other. If this had been left to the free market, the demand for interoperability would have surfaced as a market demand, and it would have happened. Nobody would have had to plan it, legislate it, talk about it. It just would have happened. But instead, we're left with EHRs that don't talk to each other because of a regulatory climate that emphasized other things. And nothing has changed, and nothing is going to change there. Uh, and that's just, you know, she's right, but there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so here's something. Number six, coding by providers doesn't correlate with reality. I'll sort of fill in there a little bit. All she said was coding by providers does not correlate. And, and she's right, but it goes even deeper than I think she understands. I mean, the whole concept of, of coding, the whole concept of reducing a doctor-patient encounter to a small number of alphanumeric digits is by definition going to lose detail uh, and in our ENM coding system it's you know the requirements for the, the codes require the documentation requirements to code at a certain level of course to fill up the page with drivel and so you know communicating meaningful data becomes more difficult because of all the crap that we got to put in so number seven 
Patients don't have their records. No, they don't because up until the latest round of meaningful use, it wasn't required. Uh, policymakers don't talk to people. That's kind of the same as the other one. Yeah, no joke. Uh, you know, uh, she writes about the policymakers, and this is I'm quoting from the art from her article. Uh, quote: One needs look no further than the crafting and passing or attempt to pass the ACA and the AHCA. In both cases, Congress produced legislation that. Uh, passed or didn't pass without appropriate time for legislators to understand the content, let alone the professionals of public. True. I don't know why they create these arbitrary deadlines. I really don't. And I don't know why the Republicans had seven years while they were out of power to try and work this out and didn't. I am way, way over time. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchek here this week on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for sticking with us through some difficult mental exercises today. We are building your mental muscles, talking about blockchain, this new information technology security and interoperability technique and we were talking about the fact that if you're going to make data secure at all uh, that you've got to get rid of this whole sort of central server the one place where all your data is stored thinking that you're going to guard this with passwords or routers or you know you know that you you can't make anything secure enough if you have a a target that rich the hackers are going to get it eventually and that you've got to come up with a different paradigm on how you store and manipulate and exchange data. And that's what blockchain does. So that's what we were talking about you know, in the first two segments, and we're going to continue this explanation. So the first thing about blockchain that's different than what you're used to is that the data is not stored centrally. Every member of the network has a copy of the ledger of transactions and when a new transaction is created by a legitimate user, that is broadcast to the entire network. So there's, you know, if there's a 1,000 user network, there's 1,000 copies of the ledger of transactions, which is called the blockchain 
for reasons we'll get into later. But if you want to add an entry to the blockchain, you have to broadcast that to the entire network, creates a thousand new copies of that transaction. And so the first problem that a hacker has is that, number one, they don't have access to account balances. They only have access to individual transactions. That gives them far less power. And the second is that even in order to have access to a single transaction, they have to change that transaction fraudulently on a thousand servers, not just one. Or the number of users in the network. I, I picked a thousand as an arbitrary number. You know, the, the, if it's a million users on a digital economy network, then there's a million copies of the ledger, and a hacker has to change a million copies and hack into a million computers, not just one. And that's the first level of security. That's the first place where blockchain is fundamentally different from the client server model that we're all used to, where you log on to a central server and put your username and password, and boom, you're in as they say. So that's the first difference. So now you might say at this point, if this is all you heard, you say, well, that's no big deal. If there's a method for legitimate transactions to go out over a network of a thousand computers, all I have to do is replicate that and make a fraudulent uh, broadcast look like a legitimate broadcast, and I can change a thousand servers, copies of a ledger, no problem, right? Well, no, because there's more to it than that. So that's where we're going. What does a legitimate transaction look like and how do you make it next to impossible for a hacker or other ne'er-do-well to create a fraudulent transaction that looks like a legitimate transaction? Well, what happens is when you create a transaction, let's say that Bob wants to give five bitcoins to Susan. Well, that's broadcast over the network, but the, the problem is it's not accepted as legitimate until the transaction is mined. That's what they call it, mining. So what happens? Well, what happens is that transaction has to have what they call a hash, which is kind of like a transaction ID, best as I can tell. But how do you create a legitimate transaction ID? Well, there's about three or four things that go into that ID. It's not just a username password. There is a private key that the person creating the transaction has. There is a public key that is accessible to everybody on the network. So it's kind of like a safety deposit box, right? You go into the bank, you want to get something out of your safety deposit box, you bring your key, the bank's got their key, you got to put two keys into two locks and turn both keys and out comes the box. But you've got to unlock the safe and then you got to put in two keys. So this is kind of the same thing. You've got to have the public key, you have to have the private key, and you have to have the transaction ID from the last the prior transaction that appeared on the network. Now think about how hard that would be to find. So this is like you got a, you've got three or four things in here. So what happens is you take the prior transaction ID from which has nothing to do with the transaction you're creating and you use the public key plus plus the private key and create this complex mathematical problem and I will confess up front, I do not fully understand this, but it's an extremely complex mathematical problem that's generated based on the two keys, and it's done to the prior transaction ID to create the transaction ID that goes with the trans the new transaction you're trying to broadcast. So if that doesn't spin your head around just trying to explain it, imagine how hard it must be to to hack that. And it's and it's to the point where it takes uh, it takes the aggregate computer power of those entire thousand computers on the network about ten minutes to 
retrieve the keys, retrieve the ID from the prior transaction and, and churn this complex mathematical problem out to create a legitimate ID for the new transaction. Oh, that made me exhausted just explaining that. So, But the bottom line is that creating a, a new legitimate transaction, right, adding a block to the blockchain, right, lengthening the blockchain by a link, if you will, is a very complex process that requires uh, pulling data from multiple distant sources – Putting them together to create a math problem that creates that requires a huge amount of aggregate computer power to solve, and then the transaction is accepted as legitimate, and that is designed to take about ten minutes for the entire network to do that. So that's how links are added to the blockchain, and one of the levels of security here is that your you know proverbial hacker in their mother's basement with just a few computers can't match the aggregate computing power of thousands of legitimate computers on the network and so the legitimate computers will always retrieve the keys and solve the problem first before the hacker can and even if the hacker manages to beat the billions to one mathematical odds what does the hacker really get they only get one transaction. So even if they beat, you know, what I'm told based on reading is, you know, billions to one odds of being able to solve the problem before the network miners do, that um, that they won't that the reward is not enough to justify the effort. Right? So that's a fundamental change. From what we talked about in the beginning, which is that all you got to deal with one, you know, in in the classic sort of password username password server paradigm that we're living with today, where you know it's certainly worth the effort to try to find a username and password because once you get in, you have access to everything. When you do this, and this gets back to this immune system example I was talking about when the CEO of IBM was talking about security needs to look like our body's immune systems, that's what this is, right? I mean, if you get a cut in the skin and a bacteria goes through, the minute it gets below the skin, the immune system starts to fight that bacteria. Here you've got the same thing going on where even if you break through the skin and manage to hijack a transaction on blockchain or create a fraudulent transaction on blockchain, you've only done one transaction – uh, you know, you don't have access to the entire account balances of every user because account balances aren't even stored as discrete data, which kind of gets into the next sort of you know piece of this thing, which is that um, you know you only you can only create you don't, you don't even know what kind of fraudulent transaction to create, right? If let's go back to the let's go back to the Sun Trust example. Let's say I have a thousand dollars in my checking account. And let's say that a hacker gets my username and password somehow and hacks into my bank account and sees I have $1,000, right? They can steal the entire $1,000 just like that. They can immediately look. The bank stores that balance as discrete data. They say, okay, Karuchek's got $1,000. Boom. You know, I got his checking account and his routing number, and I'm going to move that account from his account to my account, and it's done. How did they know that $1,000 was there? Because it's easy to see. It's right there. It's, it's stored as discrete data. In, in a blockchain network, balances aren't stored as discrete data. So if somebody were to break into my account or try to on a blockchain network, they wouldn't see my account balance anywhere. 
right? The only way that you can see an account balance is to go back and look at every single transaction that's assigned to my account all the way back to the beginning of the creation of the network, do the arithmetic and figure out the balance. The problem is to do that, they have to hack into every single transaction down the blockchain, right? Millions of them to find the ones that apply to my account and do the arithmetic and see how much money I have. And again, that becomes not only almost mathematically impossible, but you have a situation where the reward doesn't justify the effort. And so that that becomes that's why people are excited about blockchain, right? Because number one, you create a, a situation where you're looking only at transactions, not at balances. And you're only looking at tiny pieces of the whole picture instead of breaking through the front door with a username and password and seeing the entire system all at once. So in the third, what, third, fourth segment, I don't remember where we are now. I guess we're, we're coming up. We're, we're 10 minutes into the – 11 minutes into the third segment. In the last segment, we'll get into exactly how this works in healthcare because there is another layer to think about. And we can sort of give you a little bit of a teaser here in two minutes. But in healthcare, it needs to work a little bit different. In healthcare, you know, how if we were to literally apply the blockchain paradigm, that would mean that, you know, the ledger, so to speak, the database would be replicated on every single user in the network. So if we have a million doctors, let's say, just to make it very simple, so we would have a million users on the blockchain network that every single doctor's database would have a complete copy of the ledger, and that would mean that every single doctor would have the healthcare data literally of every single patient in the country, whether you were a legitimate, whether that patient was yours or not. Now, that obviously is impractical, right? We don't have the computing power, the computational power, we don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the electricity to maintain that level of networking. So how do you bring that down and make that practical? Uh, you know, that's what we'll talk about in the next segment. Uh, we're about 30 seconds early, but I'm going to end it anyway, and, um, and we'll go on from there. Um, you are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us for the fourth segment, and we'll figure out how blockchain applies to your electronic medical records. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom 
and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. K, Mike Karuchek with you here all the way through segment four. We are trying to unravel the mystery of a new health information technology security and interoperability technique. Uh, It's called blockchain, and we were talking about how blockchain works initially with Bitcoin, and we talked about sort of the sordid history of Bitcoin and said, well, in spite of the fact that this was sort of the currency of, you know, cyber criminals and and ransomware people and and hackers and and, and other 'er ne'er-do-wells, that strangely the technology itself has proven itself very worthy as a – uh, you know, trustworthy and secure method of currency exchange. And so the irony is, is that this technology, which originally kind of had rather inauspicious beginnings, may actually be very useful in health information technology and other places, financial sector, wherever, uh, that, uh, that this technology might be a way to decentralize rich targets of data, rich data targets, uh, and raise the level of security such that it's simply not worth a hacker's effort to try to get to the data. So we talked about how this works with Bitcoin, uh, you know, with just, you know, with digital currency, with digital money, if you will, and started at the end of the last segment to sort of say, well, how does this apply to healthcare? And we talked about one of the fundamentals of blockchain technology is that there is no single central ledger that says what everybody's assets are. That, that there is a copy of this ledger on every user's computer. So that's more secure because if you, you, you know, if you have to change millions of ledgers, that's a lot harder than changing one ledger. So fine. We also talked about how creating a legitimate transaction to broadcast to every single ledger copy on the network is also very complex because it needs a private key and a public key and you need the index from the prior block. Uh, and then you use the keys to operate on the index to create the index for the next block and that that makes for, number one, a very difficult thing to hack and number two, if you manage to hack it, you're only getting to one transaction. You're not getting to everybody's entire network assets. And so this now, because it's a fundamental structure change, is far more secure than trying to take a server username password paradigm and juicing it up with fingerprint recognition or retinal scanning or any of these other things because fundamentally all those things are linked to a password and all you need is the password. You can bypass the fancy technology. This becomes much harder because it's a fundamental change in the structure. Instead of taking all your money and putting it in one safe behind the portrait over the fireplace, you take your money and spread it out and hide some of it in the safe and some of it under the mattress and bury some of it in the backyard. So if a burglar comes to your house – he doesn't have to look in one place for all the dough. You know, he's got to look all over the place, and that's too many targets and not enough time, and it becomes a, you know, a poor return on investment for the person trying to steal from you. So in healthcare, how does this work? Well, is, is it practical for you know, a million doctors in the United States to have a full copy of the ledger 
the way they do with Bitcoin? Well, no. It doesn't make sense for every doctor to have every single patient's health records stored in their server. Huge amount of duplication, huge amount of bandwidth. Obviously, you don't have to understand the rest of this to understand that that simply doesn't work. So what do you do instead? Well, you make the blockchain nothing more than an index file, right? a series of pointers. Now, how would that work? And I'll, I'll see if I can walk you through this adequately because this is hard. I'm not sure I'm going to get it right the first time. I tried to write some notes and I'm going to go off them, but I don't know how this is going to go. So if I don't like it, we'll just try again. Imagine, if you will, that I have a patient in my office and they need a chest x-ray. Let's keep this really simple. So what happens? Well, when I order their chest x-ray, that becomes an addition to the blockchain. So I put that order in, that order. The order, right, is not the, not the chest x-ray itself, but just the order is copied to everybody's blockchain. And then that patient goes and gets the chest x-ray. And when they get that chest x-ray, there is both a, an image that goes with that and a radiologist report, right? Those are also assets. They're not bitcoins, but they're assets. And so when that's generated, it's kept in the radiology database, but it really doesn't go anywhere else. So let's say the patient comes back to my office, and now I want to see the results. Now, in the current system, I would get that faxed over to me, the, the radiologist report, and the patient would bring a disc, and I'd pop it in my computer and I would look at the chest X-ray. Well, that I think in a blockchain paradigm, none of that would happen. Um, when the report was completed, another block would be added to the chain that says the chest X-ray is done, and Dr. Karuchak gets access to the result. So the transaction, if you will, isn't a movement of money. The transaction is to assign Dr. Karuchak the authority to look at the report in the image. And then I would be able to look at the report in the image, but I wouldn't have to copy it to my server. It would stay on the radiology server. And after I, you know, the, the act of viewing it would create a blockchain transaction. Then I would see it and make my interpretation and treat the patient accordingly. But I wouldn't have to copy the image to my server. There would just be links added to the blockchain, all of which gets copied to everybody that's in my network, not necessarily a hundred, not necessarily a million doctors all over the United States. But let's say, you know, the, the 2000 doctors that work in the three hospitals that, that are within walking distance of where I am, you might have 2000 users on the network and they would all get that. But, you know, a hacker's got no way of knowing where that chest X-ray data is, and it's not linked to demographic data. So again, it becomes a very poor target for a hacker to try to go after. But yet, the blockchain has not only provided access and security, but it's provided interoperability as well. And that's something that, as I kind of read through this, I didn't see that topic developed. But I do think that blockchain allows uh, a lot of leaps forward in the whole interoperability problem that says instead of a patient having to schlep their disk to me for their visit, that all that all that's taken care of because of the blockchain transactions that happened, number one, when I put the order in, and number two, when the study was completed and the results were put on the radiologist server, 
that my access to their server was not username password based. It was blockchain transaction based. And those can be programmed, you know, with any sort of sets of limitations you want. They could be programmed such that only me and my partners in my practice could see that and that there might even be a time limit on it that if I didn't access it inside a month that I'd lose my access or something along those lines, whatever restrictions you want. But the way I access that chest X-ray is no longer by username password the way it is now or by the, the physical carrying of physical digital media like it is now. Either the patient brings their DVD with the picture, or I log on to the radiologist server with a username and password that can be hacked. Now that happens another way. I don't have to have a username and password. All I have in my EMR is a blockchain transaction record that if I click on it, you know, by its authority, I get into... Uh, the radiology server, but only to see the records that the blockchain allows me to, that particular patient, right? Right now, and I hope I'm doing this well, um, right now, if I log in with a username and password, right, I have a username, I have a password, I can see anybody's x-rays. They don't have to be mine. I can, you know, I got access to thousands of images there. All I got to do is know the patient's name and hit search, and it shows me what's there, you know, access to stuff that I don't need access to because I'm not the doctor for every single patient that's there. Now I get you know, access through a blockchain transaction that only gives me access to that particular patient in that particular study. So that's a huge difference, right? I can't get access to Joe Jones's you know, or Susie Smith's x-rays unless she's my patient. And a blockchain transaction exists to give me access to her records in particular. So uh, I think there's where the power of blockchain lies in, uh, in, in making in, – in solving uh, you know, many of our health IT um, interoperability and security problems. So a couple of uh, issues. we got about three minutes left. Uh, just a few, little bit of terminology here just so that if you happen to read this stuff, you kind of understand what it is. So let's go back to my example here where we got a chest X-ray. Radiologist did it. They generated an image. They generated a report. That all stayed on the radiologist server, which I accessed not by username password but by a blockchain authorization, which was specific to that patient and that study. That radiologist server would now be called a data lake. Now, why they call it a data lake, I have no idea. But that's the terminology. If you happen to see that and you hear about blockchain and data lakes, that what they're talking about is that's, that's sort of where – that's the servers where the data was actually generated. And it just has to stay there. I don't have to copy that chest X-ray onto my server. It sits on their server with a blockchain authorization in my document list in my EMR. And all I have to do is click on it and I can see it. It's as good as having it on my server, but you know, with a well-developed enough cloud, I can't tell the difference. I click on it, and the image pops up, and that's all I care about. I don't care where that image comes from. I don't care if it comes from my EMR server or if it comes from the radiologist server. As long as it comes up quickly and that technology is available, then it doesn't matter. But in the background, it's going to a data lake that I have authorization access to through a blockchain transaction as opposed to a username password. So – Huge difference. Another nice thing about this 
is that patients would have more control over who gets access to their data. Right? Let's say a primary physician sees a patient with sinusitis, decides that person needs to see an ear, nose, and throat doctor. You know, I am naive to that patient. I have no record of that patient in my EMR the moment they walk in. But the patient or the referring doctor can issue a blockchain transaction that gives me access to that entire chart, which lives on the primary physician's EMR. I don't have to copy it onto mine. I just need the blockchain access, which is, again, not username password based. I don't need access to the entire server of that primary doctor, just the patient they're referring. And a blockchain transaction would be the thing that gave me that referral. And patients would have control over this, right? If a patient was referring themselves, they would have a blockchain app that would allow them to get into their blockchain medical record indexes and say, okay, Mrs. Jones went to Dr. Smith, who now needs to see Dr. Karuchak. So Mrs. Jones gets on her blockchain app, finds Dr. Karuchak's name and says, give access. All right, that generates a blockchain transaction that finds its way to my EMR. So now when that patient comes in, I don't have to pay my staff a zillion dollars to copy that data into my EMR, I get direct access through the other. So we're about out of time. Hopefully that helps. You're still probably confused. I'm still not fully straight on it. Go read about it. There's some good YouTube videos. It is worth your time to get familiar with it. We've used up the hour. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. See you in a couple of weeks. Don't miss Hal next week. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.